Hey, today we're gonna talk about dwelling with uncertainty. When I say the word uncertainty, what do you feel? What comes to mind? Confusion? Pain? Sadness? Loss? Fear? Anxiety? Depression? Some of you are like, excitement! I'm like, you are crazy. <laughs> Talk to me afterwards. No. What do you feel? What comes to mind when the word uncertainty is presented before you? Today, we are gonna talk about it because guess what? Every single one of us live with uncertainty. That is part of what it means to be alive. But the Bible invites us to dwell with God in the midst of our uncertainty. And so today we're going to peel back an ancient poem in Psalm 69 and look at the layers of what this complex man, David, had to say about dwelling with God in uncertainty. But before we get there, I want to share some thoughts. In January, I picked up a book. It's a rather strange book. It was called The Interior Castle. And I am not going to lie, the title and the picture on the cover are what drew me to this book, right? The Interior Castle was written by a woman named St. Teresa of Avila. She was a Spanish nun. She lived during the 1500s. And uh, the book is strange. And it's strange because it was written in a time that's foreign to us. And it's strange because it's poetry. And it's strange because she kind of had to write it in such a way that didn't offend the religious authorities of the day because she was writing on the backdrop of the Spanish Inquisition. And if they thought it was actually her telling these things, well, they would kill her. Crazy stuff, right? But deep within the layers of this book is a call to explore the depths of your own soul, to traverse the inner temple inside of you where the Holy Spirit dwells, to grow in your awareness of his closeness, his love, and his presence in your life. It's what we have been talking about here, to dwell with God. Now, someone who translated her work wanted to put what she was trying to say in modern day English in a way that perhaps we could understand, and this is how she writes what dwelling with God is like. There is a secret place a radiant sanctuary, as real as your own kitchen, more real than that, constructed of the purest elements, overflowing with 10,000 beautiful things, worlds within worlds, forests, rivers. This magnificent refuge is inside of you. Enter. Shatter the darkness that shrouds the doorway. Listen. Softly, the one you love is calling. Listen, at first you will only hear traces of his voice, love letters he drops for you in hiding places, in the sound of your baby laughing, in your boyfriend telling you a dream, in a book about loving kindness, and in the nameless sorrows that fill your heart when you wake in the night and remember the world has gone to war and you are powerless to break up the fight. Listen, his call far away, but coming closer. Be brave and walk through the country of your own wild heart. Be gentle and know that you know nothing. Be mindful and remember that every moment can be a prayer. Be still, listen, and keep walking. 
What a spectacular kingdom you have entered. Explore. Rest if you have to, but don't go to sleep. Head straight for his arms. Give yourself unconditional permission to go there. Absolve yourself from missing the mark again and again. Believe the incredible truth that the beloved has chosen for you his dwelling place at the core of your own being because that is the single most beautiful place in all creation. Waste no time and enter the center of your soul. Man, her poetic explanation of the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit in our lives is beautiful. When she was 52 years old, she met this fiery, barely five foot tall, 25 year old, passionate priest named Juan de la Cruz or St. John of the Cross. He was incredibly disillusioned with the Catholic Church, (laughs) incredibly disillusioned with the establishment, the religious establishment of his day. He deemed their behavior as unholy. And because he was so frustrated and he didn't know what to do, he decided, I'm done with all of it. And he decided he was going to live as a hermit in the hills for the rest of his days, right? Such a relatable response. Like the common version of that would be Googling like how to start a homestead and live off of the grid, right? Everyone has felt like this at some point, right? When you face the reality of the things of this world and you feel disillusioned and disappointed and you just want to walk away from it all, he was literally on his way to the hills when he ran into Teresa. And the two of them began to dialogue about what it meant for the Holy Spirit not just to dwell in the religious institutions, but to dwell inside of us in the interior castle. Now they worked, she worked on putting this book together, writing this, and two days after she finished this and the two of them had this dialogue, Juan de la Cruz was captured (laughs) by a group of angry monks. Go figure. You think the church is broken today? How about that? He was tortured and imprisoned in a dark tower for nine months by a group of monks. Crazy. Miraculously, on the verge of death, he escaped. Now, while he was in captivity with these wicked men, this idea of God dwelling with us came to the forefront of his mind. But he recognized that God's dwelling didn't prevent him from pain or suffering or confusion or depression, anxiety or injustice. Somehow he recognized that he is living in the tension, that he is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And yet he is living in this dark and broken world. When he finally escaped, he wrote his most famous poem titled The Dark Night of the Soul. And it is exactly what I just said, isn't it? Exploring what it looks like to live in the tension between expectation and experience. When God dwells in the midst of our brokenness and of our sadness, wondering where is God? Who is he? Is he good? Can he be trusted? And this is precisely the tension that we are invited into as we approach Psalm 69 today. Psalm 69 is a psalm of King David. 
We don't exactly know when he wrote it. He wrote a lot of them, but we do know that he had become king of Israel by the time he wrote this. And that's important because you need to understand as a teenager, a shepherd boy, a forgotten son of his father, God anointed him through the prophet Samuel to be the next king of Israel. Right, we read those stories and we're like, yeah, that makes sense. You don't understand how revolutionary this is. This is not possible that this little shepherd boy that his own father cannot even see, God sees him and calls him to the kingdom. But 30 years happen in his life between his anointing and his appointing, which means what? David lived with a tremendous amount of uncertainty. Is God to be trusted? Will God follow through? And trust me, those 30 years were not up and to the right, easy to the ascension to the throne. There were times when he had to act like a crazy man, running around with drool coming down his beard, running for his life from his father-in-law who was trying to kill him. Over and over and over again, he lived in caves with brigands and thieves, right? He traversed the road of uncertainty by trusting the call of God on his life and believing that he is faithful to fulfill the promises that God has spoken to him. And this is not unique to David's story, by the way. You can traverse the entire Bible and find person after person after person. This is what it looks like to live in the tension of following the call of God, trusting Jesus and living in this broken world. But what we come, when we come to Psalm 69, when we come to the life of David, something that we see is that in all of his uncertainty, there were a few things, a few things that he was certain of. The first was that he is called, chosen, and deeply loved by God. And church, so were you. Not just because he was supposed to be this big king and figure. No, his story is there to teach us the same is true of you. You are called, chosen, and deeply loved by God. And David would need to hold to those words in all circumstances. The second is that God is faithful to his promises. Even at times when he didn't feel like that might happen, he had to cling to that truth, that certainty that God is faithful. Now, Those two ideas teach us something deeper, the foundation of dwelling with God in uncertainty. And one of those things is this, that God knows what he's doing. (laughs) He's rather good at running this universe. (laughs) He created it, spoke it into existence. He knows what he's doing. And when we allow that to like really take resonance inside of our heart, it leads us to this next thing. And this is true about the life of David. You saw it over and over again manipulating things or trying to, to satisfy our impatience will likely lead to the doors being shut, not open. Waiting is trusting. And yes, patience is hard. This is what we see in the life of David. And third, God's promises to you hasn't changed just because it hasn't happened yet. There is a work that happens in you before there is a work that happens through you. And that is important to know. Now, these are facts from David's story, but there is something deeper that we find in Psalm 69. Often in the church, we emphasize having a personal relationship with Jesus. And I am here to say that's a very good thing, right? But we cannot reduce our relationship with Jesus to memorizing facts and doctrine and ideas about God. 
Relationship means experience. It actually means friendship, communion with God, which includes your whole self. So yes, I think it's good to know good and right things about God. I encourage that, obviously, right? But there's a deeper invitation of God in relationship with you. And it is not just to know intellectually the right things about him, but to feel, to actually allow God to work in and through your emotions as well. So this psalm doesn't just give us a glimpse into the intellectual aspects of being a follower of Jesus, but as you peel back the layers, it exposes the anatomy of our soul and it invites us to feel with God on a deeper level. But if there's one thing that I have learned is that in the church, we struggle with emotions, especially the negative spectrum of emotions. Let me tell you a story. About, I don't know, nine years ago, I've been here about a decade, but early on in my time here, I was telling a story about one of my daughters, and I didn't expect this to happen, but as I was sharing this story of me resuscitating my oldest daughter back to life, I got choked up, because that's what happens. I got emotional, and I, I, I had to try to catch myself in this. You know, when you do this long enough, you get a lot of interesting stories to tell, okay? And I'm sure this is from none of you in this room, but after the service, somebody came up to me and they looked at me and they said, you need to eat more frozen vegetables. I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, frozen vegetables? Yeah, you need to, before you preach, eat more frozen, frozen vegetables because it'll help you control your emotions. We don't need to see you cry here. I was like, how do I tell you I don't agree with you? By the way, I've never tried it before, but if you have, let me know how it goes. What that told me was that this person, but really it's not just this person, they speak on behalf of a broad range within Christianity, is deathly afraid of our emotions. And part of that is because there has been a void in our discipleship around how we express our emotions or bring them to God and allow him to form them. And typically that is shaped by one verse in particular, Jeremiah 17, nine, and it says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure, who can understand it? We often translate that verse to say emotion and particularly negative emotion is dangerous inherently somehow wrong or bad and must be avoided, must be explained away. We must be people of joy and happiness, right? We must push those things away. They are deceitful. But what this is talking about, heart, leb in the Hebrew, is your desires. And yes, they're connected to your emotions. However, your desires for things are wrong and broken. And if you're honest with yourself, you know that. You long for the wrong thing. My six-year-old wants cotton candy for breakfast. It's not the right thing. This is about renovating your desires and changing it. And I know that's true because Jeremiah 17, 10, the next verse says, I, the Lord, search the heart, examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Search and examine the heart and mind. It literally means to test, to prove like gold in a refiner's fire. Yes, the seed of our desires may be corrupted, but God desires to purify them, change them. And that is through the expression of not just our intellect, but our whole being, our emotions as well. Pete Scazzaro, author of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, wrote, when we deny our pain, losses, and feelings, year after year, we become less 
and less human. We transform slowly into empty shells with smiley faces painted on them. Sad to say, that is the fruit of much of our discipleship in our churches. But when I began to allow myself to feel a wider range of emotions, including sadness, depression, fear, and anger, a revolution in my spirituality was unleashed. I soon realized that a failure to appreciate the biblical place of feelings within our larger Christian lives has done extensive damage, keeping free people in Christ in slavery. In that same book, he said, emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. To tend to your emotional health is spiritual formation as well. Why is this important? Well, because I've already said it, dwelling with uncertainty means we will open up ourselves to the full spectrum of emotion. And if we can't even get past that and think, nope, that's wrong, I'm feeling weird there, I don't know what to do with it, then we will never enter into the interior castle with God. We will never go deeper to the place that he desires where your feelings, your desires are radically transformed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Because the road to wholeness is not in avoiding your pain or going around it, but to bring it straight to Jesus. And Psalm 69 teaches us how to do that. Here we are. We finally got there. (laughs) Psalm 69, verse one, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me, I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. Theologian Derek Kidner once wrote, the very presence of such prayers in the scriptures is a witness to his understanding. He knows how we speak when we are desperate. These are messy prayers. God understands our feelings and how sometimes we feel so overwhelmed that we say desperate things. Listen, he understands that so well that he puts examples of those very desperate things, even incorrect ideas about the way God should work in the Bible for us so that we know we are invited to bring those very things to him. This teaches us that it is safe to pray like this to God, to pour out your deepest feelings to him. Do those feelings just belong stuck inside of you? No. Do they belong out into the world to tweet and, you know, Instagram post to the world so anyone can consume them? No, don't do that. (laughs) They belong to God. Not perfectly manicured and packaged and presented, but desperately and even at times incorrectly expressed to who a God who loves you even if you say the wrong thing. What is the psalmist experiencing? 
What is David wrestling with as he pens these words? C.S. Lewis in the Screw Tape Letters once wrote, and remember, this is a fictional work of a demons writing to demons about um, tempting and how to tempt humans. They said this, our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks, why has he been forsaken and still obeys. This is what the psalmist David is experiencing. This is what St. John of the cross called the dark night of the soul. He looks around at his world. He looks inside his, his temple of the Holy Spirit and he goes, God, where have you gone? Look at the situation I have found myself in. You seem more absent than you do present. This prayer is what it looks like to dwell with God in uncertainty because it is a prayer of honesty. And if there's one thing we learn about engaging in prayer with God, it's this, pray honestly. He knows what's going on inside of your soul. Why not express it to him as well? This, story, this poem continues in verse six. Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. What is he saying? He's saying, may the honesty of my prayers not be a stumbling block for those who are also trying to put their hope in you. The question for us is, is there space in your life and in your theology to be around this kind of raw prayer? Or do we move too quickly to correcting instead of sitting alongside? Do you remember the book of Job? It's like 50 some odd chapters of Job just complaining before God. He experiences unjust suffering and he says, God, why? Why am I experiencing this? Did you know by the end of the book, Job is not corrected for speaking to God in this way. He is commended. But you know who is corrected? His friends. <laughs> Don't be like Job's friends. Because every time Job expresses his pain and his sorrow, his confusion and his questions to God, what do they do? They correct him. They tell him he's doing it wrong. That there must be some hidden sin in his life. This is the reason why he is suffering. And at the end of the book, we are told that Job is the example for those of us in pain and suffering and confusion and dwelling with God in uncertainty, run to him, but don't be like his friends. The best contribution his friends made, by the way, was they sat in silence with him for days and didn't say a word. <laughs> Verse seven, for I endure scorn for your sake and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family and a stranger to my own mother's children. In David's uncertainty, he feels isolated. He feels alone. Reinforces what I just said about Job's friends. You ever been around people but felt more alone than you were when you were by yourself? This is precisely one of the things that is happening in the psalmist's life. The very people that should be right in his corner, right there with him, he feels a stranger and lost too. Now we know by the facts, David had people in his life. He wasn't alone. And often, like the prophet Elijah, who expressed that he's alone, there's no one else faithful to God. And God's like, there are still people faithful to me. You're not alone. 
The point isn't whether he is right or wrong. The point is that he is expressing how he feels to God. That is what's happening here. And he continues, verse nine, for zeal for your house consumes me and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me and I am the song of drunkards. In his effort to be faithful to God, he is experiencing pain. Now, Leighton, in this psalm, hidden is a deep question. Why am I experiencing this suffering? Why am I experiencing this pain? Why, oh God? <laughs> and what it teaches us, what this teaches us, it's not wrong to question God in your uncertainty. In fact, it's an invitation to do so. Dwelling with him includes asking him the hard questions too. Now, this psalm is gonna take an interesting turn. It has a sort of bipolar nature to it. It's like, yeah, everything's great. Everything's the worst. Everything's great again. This is kind of how it rolls. But some of you know, that's kind of how life is, right? Verse 13, but I pray to you, Lord, for in a time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink Deliver me from those who hate me from the deep waters. Do not let the floodwaters engulf me or the depths swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love and your great mercy turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Deliver me because of my foes. Where do you turn in your pain? Where do you turn in your confusion? At the moment of David's greatest despair, he turns to the Lord. If I could summarize it, it says this, be everything that I cannot find in this broken world, O God. Do not abandon me the way all else have. have. I feel so alone. Be close to me because I am afraid. This teaches us an idea that I think is important. Write out your prayers. I know for some of you that's a foreign idea, but let me tell you, I can't even remember what I had for breakfast yesterday, let alone what I prayed for six months ago. And really, truly, the only way to sort of go back and express my gratitude to how God has answered my prayers is that I wrote them down once and went, oh my goodness, I did it this morning, six months ago. I look back and go, oh my goodness, God, you are faithful. But man, I can't even read my prayers out loud to you because you'd be offended, <laughs> right? Because that is the reality of what we're invited to here is to express our whole selves to God. But if we don't write them down as David is writing them here, you will forget. Psalm continues in sort of an interesting way. <laughs> Verse 19, you know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and it has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. 
for they persecuted those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime and do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. But as for me, afflicted in pain, may your salvation God protect me. It's almost uncomfortable to read that out loud. The progression of this psalm gets intense. It starts with, okay, God, let the trap they set before me be a trap for them. But it ends in this like sort of severe escalation. May they be blotted out of the book of life for all eternity. (laughs) Gosh, could you imagine if we sang a worship song this morning and it was like, to the tune of how great thou art, eternally destroy my enemies, (laughs) right? That would scare me away. I think it would scare you away too. Yet here it is in the worship book of the Bible, teaching us a new depth to prayer. Let me bring bring back a quote that I shared earlier. The very presence of such prayers in the scriptures is a witness to his understanding. He knows how we speak when we are desperate. Now, on one level, Asking God to eternally destroy your enemies is bad theology, okay? Remember, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is over and over and over again. It is the revealed character of God. And this is why we have to look at the Bible in its entirety, not just in one verse. But on another level, praying with this kind of desperation and honesty in your confusion is what it means to dwell with God in your uncertainty, Listen, he is so comfortable with you praying, even incorrect prayers, that he allows some of them to be in the Bible to tell you that. Verse 30, I will praise God's name in song. So he's having a good mood now. And glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it. And those who love his name will dwell there. It's Eugene Peterson that once said, all prayer pursued long enough will eventually become praise. And that is the progression found in this psalm. He prays with honesty. He prays his fears. He prays his tears. He prays his anger. And as he pursues God in prayer, he eventually ends in praise. It may take years, decades. You can't rush it. You can't force it. But eventually, if you persist in prayer, all of your prayers will eventually become praise. How? Notice what happened. The longer he pursued with honesty prayer, all of a sudden in the psalm, his attention turns to hope. And this, my dear friends, is the hope that we have in the gospel. And that is this, that we know because of Jesus, one day every tear will be wiped from our eyes. And we have hope because of Jesus that one thing, one time, everything that is broken in this world will be made whole. And if we have this hope, do you know what that means? We are free. We are free to weep. And we are free to weep with those who weep. 
You are free to experience sorrow and pain and sadness because you are free from the fear that this will never end. One day your sorrow and your pain and your sadness and even your brokenness will once and for all be made whole. And that is what wells up inside of our hearts as we dwell with God in uncertainty. Run to him, all of who you are. So what can we be certain about in uncertainty? Well, let's review. You are God's delight. (laughs) He loves you, not because of what you've done or what mistakes you have made. He just simply loves you. I say this to my girls all the time. There is nothing you can do, nothing you can say that will ever change how much I love you. It is just a fact. And that is how God feels about you. And that is something you can be certain of. It teaches us that you are not forgotten by God. One of his promises is that he will never abandon you. And that is something in your uncertainty that you can be certain of. What else can you be certain of? That you will be transformed. That this fiery furnace that you are experiencing is doing something inside of you. And he will be faithful to complete the work he has begun in you. So don't give up. There's something you can be certain of. And last, he will be faithful to fulfill the promises in your life. You can be certain of that. Now, in response, we're going to end in a similar place to where we began with the song that we sang about new wine, about trusting God when we don't understand. But as we come to that, we are brought to Jesus, who teaches us truly what it looks like to dwell with uncertainty. Jesus wrestled with the call of God on his life. He wrestled with the will of God in his life in the garden of Gethsemane, right before the cross. He pleads to the father, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. And many of you know this verse, yet not as I will, but as you will. This is in essence, the place we all come to in uncertainty. Will we surrender what we want, (laughs) what we hope for and what we dream? Jesus did not want to go to the cross. He did not want to take the cup of suffering, but he wanted the will of the Father in his life more than what he wanted. And as we come to this space in response, each of us is at that place or has been there or will be there. The question is not if you will dwell with uncertainty. That is a fact. But the question is, will you run to God and dwell with him in your uncertainty? So as we come to this time in response, I invite you to bring to the God who loves you, your doubts, your questions, your fears, and trust him even if you do not understand. Let's worship together. Oh
Isaiah 58 is um, the passage that really inspired this whole series. And it says of those who dwell with God, they will become oaks of righteousness. But in order to become an oak, <laughs> the acorn must fall from the tree and die. It must be buried and be underground. It must take root below the surface before it can rise up and provide life for those around it. This is Jesus. He died for our transgressions, was buried under the earth, but we know that death and burial does not have the final say. There is resurrection in life, amen? Amen. Will you stand with me? And if you would like to receive a prayer of blessing, just simply open your hands. May you, may I, may we be a people who run to God in our uncertainty. And as we dwell with you, may you shape and change and transform our hearts. May we be a people who pray with honesty. May we pray our fears and our tears and our anger. And may we pursue you long enough that our prayers would become praise in the hope that even though things may die, there is always resurrection life. So may we be a people who are filled with the hope of the gospel of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Well, hey, we love you guys so much. If you need prayer for anything, there's a team up here, a team in the back would love to pray with you. We love you guys, and we'll see you on Gratitude Sunday.